Um, and so uh, who provides um, half of Jesus' human DNA? So you got it, God and Mary. Uh, now with Adam, uh, both sets, 23-23 chromosomes, come from God. God creates physical matter, creates the 46 chromosomes in Adam, out of nothing. Um, and what he does with Jesus, giving him a human body, where God uh, you know, uh, passes down uh, sin um, through the man, um, Eve was the first to sin. She was the first to deceive, but Adam gets blamed for it because he's the, the head and he's responsible for everything under his dominion there and for wh whether he um, uh, didn't instruct Eve properly or motivate her properly, whatever, um, he's blamed, right, in the garden. We're learning about that in my principles Definitely. What's that? We're learning about that concept in my principles of management class, that the, the upper people get blamed for their, their inferiors. Right. Yeah. So upper people get blamed for their uh, those who are under, under them. Inferiors is a word I'll get canceled for, so I'm avoiding <laughs> that word. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of roles, not essence. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, uh, uh, just like if you're more of a sports fan, you know, then you know the coach loses his job for something uh, uh, a graduate assistant did that broke NCAA rules. Because, you know, institution, what do they call that? Institutional mismanagement or something like that for the coach, that ultimately the coach is responsible for what those under him, the head coach is responsible for those, what those under him are doing. Um, so institutional control, something like that. Something institutional. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that too. Um, and so, but, um, uh, the sin nature gets passed down through the man. It's not a physical thing, but it's a spiritual thing, but nonetheless, it gets passed down through the man. Um, and it's not that women, when they're born, don't, aren't born with the sin, sin nature. Uh, but, um, God provides the 23 chromosomes to Jesus. Uh, Mary provides the other 23 chromosomes. God, God creates the physical matter needed in the womb of the Virgin Mary um, to produce a physical human being. Okay, so so that you know that the other twenty, what Jesus wasn't forty-six chromosomes, woman, right? He wasn't forty-six chromosomes from Mary. He was twenty-three from Mary. Mary couldn't do that. Um, have you know, you know, you women don't just spontaneously combust, right? <laughs> There's no spontaneous generation uh, to use, you know, other historical scientific terms. Uh, and so God provides that um, half of Jesus' physical stuff, including his uh, 23 chromosomes, just like he had done for Adam with the 46. But he provides the 23 for Jesus provides the physical stuff to combine with the egg in Mary's womb uh, and, and Jesus is born. So, so Jesus is truly you know, human, just like Adam was truly human, though 100% of Adam's origin was from God. Right? Does that make sense? Uh, so we're just walking through kind of the specifics and the details of the, the incarnation of Jesus. Um, and so Jesus, the, so the second person of the Trinity stays the same. Uh, and so Jesus' personality doesn't start um, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Um, Jesus uh, was acting as a divine agent, divine person of God, um, when first do we see in Scripture? Creation. Creation, yeah. Um, and then he continues continues on acting, acting, acting all through the Old Testament. Um, and then um, takes on human flesh um, in the womb of, uh, of Mary. Takes on a true body and a true soul, which then begins to be something that he as a person has to deal with 
because your physical body gets tired, gets hungry, is susceptible to getting a cold and gets a cold, um, has, you know, has to eat, um, has to do something with, you know, what you eat eventually, um, if you're regular. So, <laughs> um, so, so uh, that Jesus takes those, takes those things on, um, uh, human soul, uh, there's, uh, there, there's, you know, we have, we know we have, we have hormones that affect our, our mood. Um, we've got, uh, neurological processes and, and neurons and, and, uh, you know, um, what's the, uh, what's the reuptake inhibitor? What's serotonin. the, so there's serotonin, there's melatonin, all that stuff. Now the second person of the Trinity is having to deal with those things. So that's, you know, he's taking on, um, uh, uh, human human body human soul all that stuff and dealing with that with his always existing person okay so so you have a you have a person too who you are at your core um that one day when like if you died this afternoon and jesus hasn't come back will then be freed from the influences of your body and 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 the um, the non-physical things like your thoughts um, that that are that are a part of your human existence. Okay, so that's how we kind of map through Jesus becoming uh, becoming man. Um, so he's he's like us in every way, um, yet he's born without sin because God provides that other um, fleshly and you know and cre uh, the, uh, fleshly part for Jesus at his birth. Okay, so he's the second Adam in, the, in this way too, that he's the um, third one, Adam, Eve, Jesus. He's the third one, second man, who is created without a sin nature. Yeah, Allison. Um, where he took a reasonable soul to himself, does that mean he didn't have a soul before or he so there's a difference a between soul. there's a difference between person and soul, uh -huh. and so that that's a that's kind of a hard distinction for us to to define. But yet that that's the case for for us. Um, and so there's there's physical stuff that's part of you. There's non-physical stuff that's part of you. That's part of you being human. Uh, but uh, there's and so Jesus has all that. Uh, yet Jesus is the same person, the divine person. Um, that that he's always been from um, all eternity past. Yeah. So did he have? Did he have or yeah a soul from from all time or and just took on the human aspect of we, it? We we, we talk we, so again difference between person and soul, which is kind of a hard distinction for us because for for us that's kind of you know we usually think of those in the same kind of thing. So he's always got this human person, but uh, soul is more a human thing oh, okay. that we talk about that comes about with the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And so um, just, a, oh, I just I shut it. But, you know, he, he uh, takes on by, by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. So he takes on <laughs> a reasonable soul um, uh, and th th he doesn't bring that with him. Yet, he is Christ, the Son of God. That's who he is um, from all eternity. But then takes on human soul and body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. I guess that was my question. Does God have a soul or is that a human thing? Yeah, and so we don't see in Scripture the, the talk of God having a soul. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, but, but with Jesus, we do see he's made uh, like us in all things, yet without sin, is what the writer of Hebrews says. And, and so because scripture talks about us as human beings having a soul, since the writer of Hebrews says he's made it like us in all ways, yet without sin, we say, well, then that means Jesus was at his incarnation. Um, uh, he takes on a, a true human soul. Yeah, it's a good question. So will we lose that at death? 
Uh, no, because that's that's a part of being human. Yeah, and so Jesus still has a new body, even with the new body, because we continue to be um, fully human, and God cr creates Adam, soul, body, and soul, um, and, and so you can see this in um, your Genesis two seven. You know, Adam's created out of the dust of the earth, and then God breathes life into him. And that's the soulish part that we see there, um, that uh, the, the physical body is animated, so, so to speak. no longer become a lost soul. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Jesus, in his um, glory uh, now, uh, in his perfection, in his maturity, and what deserves honor and praise, uh, being a, 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 he's a perfected human being, as well as continuing to be the second person of God, who's also perfect. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, so we've been talking about um, uh, what what two uh, proper nouns have we been talking about with Ezekiel? Dog and the God. Yeah, dog and the God. Um, and what's what here in terms of um, what are these nouns here? Okay, so this is a person, a king. Um, what's his uh, rough reigning date? Yeah, so he's around uh, 660 BC. And where is he? What modern uh, country today did he reign in? Turkey, yeah. Um, okay. Um, and uh, anyone remember the, the name of the, the country that was like the West, the it was yeah Lydia, yeah, Lydia. Um, and Lydia is still around in Paul's day. If you look at a, a map of Paul's missionary journeys, you see Lydia there in the, the southwest corner of Turkey. Um, and then what's Magog? Yeah, it, it's this is this is land over here. Okay, uh, and so it's like uh, George Washington and the Americans, Gog and Magog. Um, or Hitler and the Germans, um, Gog and Magog. Okay, good. And where did we start um, talking about Gog and Magog in Scripture? Where, Revelation. Revelation 20, yeah. And, and what's the uh, context uh, that Gog and Magog are mentioned in, in Revelation 20? Final yeah, final battle, exactly. Um, and so we say, huh, Gog and Magog, not defined. What's my first step when something's not defined in the New Testament? Go to the Old Testament. Great. Uh, you go to the Old Testament and you get a, a definition of it. How many times are Gog and Magog or, uh, mentioned? How many authors of Scripture mention Gog and Magog? One. One, yeah. And who is that? Ezekiel. Okay, yeah. So Ezekiel is who we're, uh, the one we're talking about here. And so we can go to uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, and find out the original context. Um, Ezekiel's writing around what year? 570. Okay. Um, so his book that he writes is around 570. Where is he when he's writing? In exile. Yeah, he's in exile. He's off in Babylon. Um, and he's talking uh, about um, when the people get back from exile. And who's going to trouble them when they get back from exile? Gog. Gog is. Uh, what's our problem with this? Gog lived a while. <laughs> yeah. So here's here's our here's our problem. Um, Ezekiel's writing here about what's going to happen. Sorry, this is getting low for you. Sometime after 538 BC, so 538 BC plus, and he says. This guy who died in 640, somewhere around there, is going to trouble us when we get back into the promised land. So we've talked about how you know uh, Malachi does this. He looks way back in you know like 300 years in the past or 350 something like that, and, and speaks of Elijah uh, coming again in, their, in the people's future, and then um, that being identified in the Gospels as whom. John the Baptist, Jesus does so, um, and, and so very similar patterns here. So we realize 
Um, but God here is spoken of in um, Revelation is, you know, that's uh, not the name of, we shouldn't be looking for someone in 2025 whose name is Gog. Um, but rather, this is a, a, a figurative, figure of speech. And what figure of speech is, is this, you metaphor. grammar people? Metaphor. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Um, uh, and so he's saying uh, someone uh, like God, and we see this, at, John the Baptist talked about this as, as well. Um, we, we see John the Baptist talked about in someone coming in the spirit of Elijah. Okay, so, so that's more similar. You like Elijah, but we also see um, Jesus saying in, in the, uh, using metaphor where he doesn't use like or as. That's the difference between simile. You say like or as. Metaphor is the same substance. You just don't say like or as. Uh, you just say, who do we need on our team? We need Michael Jordan. But Michael Jordan's, you know, 58 uh, years old or 59 years old. So you're not talking about literally getting Michael Jordan on your team. You just need someone like him, but you skip using like or as. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so um, we looked at Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39. Um, many nations. Uh, so go ahead and turn to uh, Ezekiel 38 there. Um, Ezekiel's the last really large uh, book in the Old Testament. Um, the, the last of the um, five what we call major prophets comes before, uh, before Daniel. And so we had looked that, uh, this is just review, uh, many nations would, would gang up, um, come against the restored um, post-exilic uh, community. Um, and um, that uh, under a man named Gog, um, that this would be a multinational uh, force. You can see that in verse 5 there, uh, all these different nations uh, that Gog has gathered and that come down against Israel. Uh, but verses 30, 22 through 39-6, uh, um, that, that God provides for his people after they come back to the promised land, uh, after this Gog figure has uh, created this multinational army that surrounds God's people from the south, from the north, um, from uh, uh, eastern lands as well, um, that God provides for them great victory. And the question uh, Laura asked, and we began to answer there at the end of last week, was did this happen in post-exile Israel? And do you remember what we said? No. Correct. Uh, it doesn't happen in post-exile uh, Israel. Um, and we said no because of IHCs. Anyone remember, anyone remember what IHCs are? Yeah, there we go. Um, so intervening um, historical contingencies uh, per Jeremiah 8, uh, 7 through 10. And so um, we want to just look at this to get this in our heads because all of Scripture operates this way. God operates with us, his people, with this uh, concept of interhistorical contingencies. Um, uh, we see this from the garden. Um, as Adam and Eve are excluded from the garden, we see that the plan was that there was a tree of life in the garden that Adam would be able to eat from and live forever. But even though this was God's, you know, intent, this was a, a, a potential future, not a certain future that could not change. Okay, so God's dealing in things like this throughout all of Scripture, and um, he's, the, he's the father of his people who says, sometimes explicitly, using words, if you do this, then this will happen. Sometimes that's left implied. It's an implied condition, um, like um, with Jonah. Okay, Jonah's message to the Ninevites is what? In 40 days you'll be destroyed. You will be destroyed. Does he say, unless you repent? No. He does not say that. He says in 40 days you will 
be destroyed. And there's this implied condition that we'll see here in Jeremiah 18, um, that if you repent, then I won't bring the disaster on you that I've announced. Uh, and so let's go to Jeremiah 18. So just turn a little bit to your left now. And this is helping you understand the prophets too. Um, just like last week, we were looking at Ezekiel and we were saying, isn't this great? This is not fanciful stuff that we can't understand. This is Ezekiel talk, talking about real historical stuff. He's talking about Gog, who is a guy who existed that they all knew about. And these other nations that they all knew about who surrounded them. And that after they'd come back from the exile, God would gather these nations and come against them, but God would give them a great victory. That's simple. We don't have to do numerology and, you know, all this stuff and, and listen to somebody who says, what's that, Lord? You know, on TV, touch the TV screen and you'll find out too. Um, but but rather, this is simple stuff. I, you know, just a little uh, fun side story for you. Uh, I remember when I was in my uh, spring of my first year of seminary, and prophets was a second year class in, in the spring of your second year. And, and I was given a, a, a ride uh, to one of my friends, Greg Ward, to his wife's place of employment because it was right on my way home. Um, and it was the end of the day. And I said, what are you doing here on campus um, so late, Greg? And, uh, and he said, it was just five o'clock, but I stayed till five o'clock each day. And he said, well, I actually, I was taking profits. And I said, how is that class? And he said, you know how you always thought you'd never understand the prophets? And I said, yes. And he said, you actually understand the prophets. Um, and, and, that was, and that was true. So Jeremiah 18, and it's a big part of understanding the prophets and understanding all of scripture and how God speaks to us. Uh, so let's read these verses seven through 10. Um, and and let's, let's go front row this time. So Andrew, then Allison, cross here. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed. And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Okay, so let's stop there. So God says, if I announce what? Disaster. Disaster. So he announces disaster. Um, and then what's he say about that disaster he announces? Yeah. If those he's announced disaster upon repents, he will relent. So just because God announces something does not mean he is predicting an unchangeable future. In fact, what we see in scripture is that he's like us as parents or just as friends. You know, when you see your friend doing something stupid, <laughs> you say, so you want to die an early death? You say to your friend and they go, why is this dangerous? You say, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. so, but you, you know, so you say something to prevent them from doing something disastrous to themselves. And sometimes that's by telling them the consequences of their continuing in their current behavior or their intention. Okay, and so that's what God says here. So if, if, if a nation is being evil, I'll declare a disaster upon them perhaps. But if they repent, I won't bring that disaster. And then I'm happy. Um, Ezekiel says, you know, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel 38 or 1832. He says about three times in Ezekiel. Yeah, Matthew. So, so a minute ago, you said there's simplicity. It's easy to understand. Yeah. But it also passes a sufficiently complex analysis as well, because you can, you can read this and say it seems like God is somehow constrained by cause and effect. You know, if this, then that. But in actuality, God is the one who created the concept of cause and effect. He, he is. So cause it, and effect comes out of God, not the other way around. Right. Yeah. And so on the surface, it's true. Yeah. Easy to understand. And then if you dig deeper, it's still true. And it's yeah. still, you know, passes muster. There's yes. a, not one level in which it's it contradicts or doesn't. Compromises something. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. Um, go on, Mallory. 
And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Okay. And so what's what's this now? So God announces what? Blessing. Blessing. And then what's the intervening historical contingency? A nation turns from what was going to bring them blessing, you know, a, a loyal obedience and worship of him. They turn from that and, and begin becoming evil. God says that announcement, that was also not a prediction of an un unchangeable future. What will God do if they turn to evil? Yeah, reconsider the, the blessing that he was going to bring upon. Now, he's free to, to be gracious, which is the history of Old Testament Israel. Generally, he's not giving them, as David said, what their sins deserve. And he's extending grace and extending grace and extending grace. Yet it's not all the blessing they could be receiving. They're, they've got troubles, but it's not as bad as he said it could be. Um, and so that's the, that's the principle that we deal with with scripture that God himself says understand this so we're not being liberal or wishy-washy I mean theologically liberal unbible believing that's what I mean when I say liberal we're not being unbible believing when we say God can announce something and then switch if there's an intervening historical contingency his, his announcement is almost always, uh, not always, but almost always um, coming with either stated conditions or implicit conditions, which is how we deal with each other in language. You know, so our, our kid's not going to, our kid's going to disobey us, and we say, so you're not going to get ice cream this weekend. But they haven't committed the crime yet. And they, they pull back their hand, you know, from, you said, don't touch that. And they're starting to touch it. And you say, so you're not going to get ice cream this weekend. They pull back their hand that, you know, that that's an, I haven't announced a certain future. I've announced to my child a potential future if he continues or she continues in that action. And that's how God operates like we operate. That's how God uses language like we use language. Yeah, Matthew kind of addresses my question there. So, is it God showing mercy by constraining himself in such a way that he can be understood by human logic, or is it that our logic mirrors how God operates because we're created in his image? Does that make sense? Probably a little both there. Just for the thing. Um, Okay, so here's, here's our uh, question. Stacy. could you read this question for us, that bullet there? Are God's announcements of the future a pre-telling of a certain unchangeable future? So our answer is? No. No. Um, or, Bill? Or a potential future that? Crystal. Will certainly happen in an unaltered form if nothing changes, or? Okay, so see that. God could bring it about. If nothing changes, he's told us what he's going to do. Uh, but you see Jeremiah 18, he's saying, but if there are changes. Uh, and see. Will happen in an altered form because of the response of the recipients. Moderate changes in their behavior or. And Matthew. Will happen not at all because of the response of the recipients. Significant changes in their behavior. Okay, so as far as the Jonah story is concerned, um, what's what's happened in these bullets? Where are we? which bullet are we on? The third one. Yeah, we're on that last third bullet there. Um, God's announced a potential future in forty days. You will you will be destroyed, and then down to the third bullet. Um, this doesn't happen at all. At least in the Jonah story, it eventually happens. They eventually are destroyed, but they're eventually uh, destroyed many, 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 many years later. I mean, Jonah's dead when, when Assyria is conquered by the Babylonians. Um, uh, 150 years, if I'm thinking right, um, later. 
but will happen not at all because of the response of the recipients. They, they repent, uh, they, they take off their, you know, they, they wear sackcloth and they're in ashes and they're fasting. Um, and so there are significant changes in their behavior. So God's announcement of a potential future, them being destroyed in 40 days, does not happen at all. Okay. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah. It's not as if God is bound in power by the response of the of the affected parties, but because he God is, is independent, right? Right, but because He is, Acting I always forget what character. the, the you know the fidelity or He's you know because of His fidelity and His agreement with His creation, that's why He responds consistently. Correctly. Correct, correct. And so God's consistent with his own character. So this is part of why you see in the Old Testament, God says um, if God's people behave, he will be faithful. Or what's our, what's, our, uh, what's our fancy religious term for faithful to the covenant? Righteous. Righteous. So when God is righteous, part of his being righteous is bringing blessing when his people are faithful. Not perfect sinlessness, but faithful. God is their only God. They're only worshiping God. Um, they're celebrating the festivals. They're bringing their sacrifices to cover their sins. And if they're doing that, that's covenant faithfulness. Okay, and that's different than sinlessness. No one's sinless in Old Testament Israel. But God's saying, if you're covenantally faithful, faithful to my covenant, faithful to what I gave to Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, then I will bring all these blessings, Deuteronomy 28, like the first 11 or 12 verses, or Leviticus 26. Um, that, that those are two places where you have blessing. But God is also righteous when his people, and God speaks this way in the prophets, he is also righteous when he does what? And it's not bringing blessing. He's also righteous or faithful to the covenant when he does what? Curses. Brings curses. And so we rightly... Fear, disobedience, abandoning the covenant, going after other gods, saying, yeah, I need to give this sacrifice, but I'm going to blow it off. Because God is righteous. He's faithful. He's covenanted to discipline us with blessings and curses. And so we say, just like, you know, you say to your sibling, man, if dad finds out, you're in trouble. And so we rightly fear. And it's not that dad hates us, but it's because dad is providing for us an environment to teach us responsibility and doing what's good and right because that will be good for our lives. Okay, and so God is the same, is the same with us. So he's, he's righteous um, in bringing blessings. He's covenantly, covenantal, he's faithful to his covenant, promising, bringing what he's promised in blessings, and he's faithful, bringing what he promised in curses too, so that we would know that our actions matter on the earth. Even though he's sovereign, right? The, the argument of Arminians. They say, oh God, if you say God's sovereign, then nothing we do matters. No, it does matter because when we do wrong, he's sovereign and he's faithful to his covenant. He'll discipline us. He's a loving father, Hebrews 12, who disciplines his child because he loves his child. And he's also a loving father who's waiting on the edge of his seat to bless us as we turn to him, whether in repentance or just continued faithfulness. Yeah, and there's a great mercy, too, in the unimpeachable nature of his response and his consistency. Because yeah. if we didn't know how he was going to respond, yeah. I mean, we would be living in fear constantly. Yes. It, it, God is not unpredictable, in other words. And so that's a great mercy. And so one of the things that the Ninevites um, can know just from their, their um, souls, the image of God within them, uh, is that there is a God and he's somehow just. And maybe he's even merciful. I've shown mercy to my kid or to my friend. So maybe that's something that God is too. And so the king of Nineveh says, 
let's repent for who knows maybe god will withhold this disaster from us um and, and so um and this is part of god's covenant with creation you know with adam that he gives man his image and so god doesn't do certain things to man that he could do in his power because man bears his image and so all even not his people are under his common grace um and can't and this is you know part of jeremiah 18 if any nation not just a covenant nation but if any nation responds in a certain way um here's my predictable response uh in my sovereignty in my power and i can do anything i want i want you to know i won't act out of my character and my character is to show kindness and to be gracious with those who bear my image that's my character and i won't act outside of my character so if anyone turns to me you know now on this day if anyone turns to me jesus in, in john 6 39 or john 6 37 uh, and whoever comes to me i will never drive away okay and so god has this predictable character um, that we can bank on okay let's go to joel um joel preached and wrote between 605 and 587 what's happening uh in the in the uh in the lives of God's people between 605 and 587 BC. Babylonian yeah, Babylonian troubles. Um, these are um, these are the dates of our um, deportations. Um, and this occurs kind of around a, a year there. <laughs> I think they, they get conquered around 587 or at the end of it, and 586, they arrive in exile in 586. But um, who goes in 605 to Babylon? Northern Israel. Oh, the Daniel. Daniel, the best of the best, the nobility out of Jerusalem, the ones who will be helpful to Nebuchadnezzar, he takes on his way home. He's been fighting egypt or, or assyria um and, and he comes down and swipes up the the brightest and the best and so daniel and his friends go off to be in nebuchadnezzar's court to help him out um 597 who goes here off to uh, gets deported off to babylon most of them most of them here's the the bulk the bulk of the the exile or the bulk of the deportation is here at 597 and then um so who goes here that we've been looking at his book? Ezekiel. Ezekiel goes here. And so Ezekiel spends a lot of his time in the 590s writing about what's going on back in the promised land among those who weren't carted off. Okay, and so Ezekiel has these visions about going back to the temple and about the wickedness that's going on back in the promised land, because it was. The temple was still up and there was great wickedness in the promised land. And Ezekiel establishes that it's actually those who were kind of favored by God who got deported here. Because these guys who are still left in the promised land, they're really going to get it in 587, 586. Uh, and that's, that's Ezekiel's message um, in large part. You see a lot of this in Ezekiel there. And so what happens in Jerusalem at 586? Temples destroyed, okay, 586. Okay, so this is Daniel. This is the biggest deportation. This is the destruction of the temple and the deportation of a few more. And Nebuchadnezzar just leaves behind the, the poorest of the poor um, in the land just so that it doesn't get overgrown with weeds. Okay, Jeremiah also is left back in the land because God grants his favor upon Jeremiah. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't mess with him. Um, and tells his commander, let him do what he wants. And so Nebuzaradan, his commander, comes to Jeremiah and says, if you want to come with us, you can come. You'll have favored status. Or if you want to stay, you can stay. Um, but know you'll be protected if you come with us. Jeremiah um, stays um, and, and stays there on the promised land and then uh, ends up 
heading down to Egypt after a year or two. Okay, um, so that's what's going on. Um, Joel's preaching sometime during this during this period. Um, perhaps he's preaching here and writes right afterward, but we can't we can't take a firm firm line um, a firm line there. Um, okay. Um, Next thing here, let's so let's go to Joel two verses one through one through eleven. Anyone have a page number for Joel and our our Bibles in the seats? Six forty four. Okay. Um, and so Joel two um, uh, verse verse one. Um, so keep in mind when is Joel preaching and writing? During the exile. <clears throat> Um, he's not in exile yet. When, and so when, when's he writing and who's he writing to? Most of Israel. Okay, yeah. Probably he's writing here, which means probably, and, and he's not in exile with Daniel. He's writing to God's people. And so he's writing here. Okay. So what hasn't happened yet is this great deportation, the return of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's there in 605, but he comes back in, in 597. And so Joel is writing um, uh, here, um, and, and so um, as prophets do, they write of these images. These, they give us these pictures of, of what is um, at least a potential uh, future that the people will that the people will see. Um, so let's go ahead and, and read. And so Jim, we're to you, and then Bob, and across the the Bradfords, and then uh, Spencer's, and we'll see how far we get there. So Joel uh, one through two, one through eleven. Blow the trumpet in Zion. What's Zion? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Okay. What time is, what's Joel talking about here? Don't get confused by day of the Lord, by the, the charismatic and dispensational people on TV. It's just a day of judgment. Yeah, the day of the Lord is a day of great judgment, and there are many through Scripture that are identified. Day of the Lord. What's Joel talking about? Yes, he's talking about the Babylonians. Blow the trumpet in Jerusalem. Okay? He's really talking about Jerusalem. That's that's where he is. Blow the trumpet here in Jerusalem. Um, and he says, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Where was Jerusalem located? On a hill. On a hill. So God's holy hill is it's the city on the hill. Okay, So that's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Let all who live in the land. What land? The promised land. Okay, so this is not Joel blowing smoke and saying stuff that absolutely makes no sense and has no implication on the people he's ministering to in their time of crisis. Thanks, Joel. We'll, we'll bury that away until 2023 when we need it. Right? See how that stupid interpretation of Scripture. Okay? Why would God inspire something at a time of crisis that means nothing to the people, that gives them no instruction? Thanks, God. We really needed that. But Jimmy Swaggart would need it in 1980. Thanks for giving that to him. Right? See how that's really, really dumb interpretation of Scripture. That God would... God who is sovereign over words would communicate at the wrong time. Whoops! <laughs> that he would give the wrong people a message that did nothing for them. Get it? Joel was not writing to us. He wasn't preaching in Babylon to an imaginary audience that lived 600 plus, uh, what are we in, 2000? So 2,600 years later. Did it? Make sense? 
We interpret scripture based on who is the, the speaker speaking to. Because God didn't give a book to Adam in the garden and say, save this in various parts of this. That is, he didn't give this to Adam in the garden and say, save this because at various times through history, various parts of this will start to make sense. Right? How much scripture does God give Adam? None. None. God starts inscripturating with whom? Moses. Moses. Okay, what's going on in Moses' day? Where are God's people? The wilderness. In Egypt, coming out of Egypt, going on to Mount Sinai. And so that's when God's people need a message. And so he starts inscripturating. And God inscripturates over, so Moses is around 1450, uh, Revelation's at 95. So we got about 1550 years, 1550 years of writing. And God inscripturates books all through those times of scripture to people sometimes and maybe Genesis is at the end of Egypt or maybe it's at Sinai. Deuteronomy is on the edge of the promised land and looking over the Jordan River. They need a message then, so he brings about Deuteronomy. Um, and then you get to, to you know, David and Saul and he inscripturates Ruth and, and then you, know, you get to the divided kingdom and he inscripturates first and second Samuel because the people need to know you got to stick with David. And that's the message of first and second Samuel. Stick with David and his line. Okay. Uh, and so God inscripturates at all these various times all the way to Revelation. He, he talks about, you know, don't bow down to the beast. Don't bow down to the government and call the governor divine in the 90s because the Roman emperor was making people bow down and call him divine lest they lose their lives. And so God in Scripture, it's revelation when that's going on and not back during Hezekiah's day. Okay? God in Scripture, it's books when his people need it. And so Joel's here and he's talking about this potential future that's coming upon them, which is here, or maybe here, or maybe a little of both, okay? So he's talking to these folks here, living in the promised land, saying, he said, sound the alarm in Jerusalem. Okay, um, go on. Are we still on you, Jim? Am I still interrupting you? Yeah, yeah Laura, so yeah, quick yeah. Just to make sure, so day of judgment, um, day of the Lord, mm -hmm. is just really like a big day of judgment, but it could refer to a whole bunch of things. That's right. In, in scripture, throughout biblical history, day of the Lord is when God shows up and he rescues his people and he brings judgment against their enemies. And sometimes God speaks to his people and he says, you have become my enemies. So don't say, and, and I, for, I forget whether uh, this may be Amos. I, I for, I'm, I'm forgetting right now which one of the minor prophets. Don't say we want the day of the Lord to come. Because you've become my enemies. You're worshiping other gods. I see all these gods around the land. If the day of the Lord comes now, you're my enemies and I'm bringing my wrath against you. So don't say you want the day of the Lord to come. Yeah. So day of the Lord is, a, is an expression that's used throughout scripture. And it's not just speaking of like we hear in bad interpretation today. It's not just speaking of Jesus' return, which lo and behold is where God rescues his people and brings his wrath against the enemies of his people, um, which is what we're talking about there at final battle. But it's, it's the final day of the Lord, but it's not the first. Okay. Um, okay. So are we still with you, Jim? I read one. Okay. You read one. So we're on two. Okay. Um, Ooh, so who's coming? Babylon, a mighty army. Who was, so we say, how do we know this is Babylon? Well, because Joel was writing right then. They'd already lost some of their nobility. Daniel was already gone. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was, was charging them taxes already. Um, the reason Nebuchadnezzar comes back is the king says, we're not paying taxes anymore. So Nebuchadnezzar says, oh yeah. 
and he comes back. Um, and, and so this army, this vast army, so everyone hearing Joel knew, you know, sound the alarm, a vast army's coming against us because even though God's giving us this warning, here we've continued in our wickedness. And so, 40 days and you'll be destroyed, is Joel's message. Sound the alarm, a vast army's coming, and you're, we're going to get destroyed. Um, and that vast army's Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, uh, go on. Laura. Uh, before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing is Babylon had already, they defeated Assyria in 612, 610 uh, BC. They wiped out you know, Nineveh, the capital city, great battle, and, and they had been dominant over the Egyptians, the other major power. And everywhere they went, they conquered. And so it was like, before they arrive, it could be like the Garden of Eden. After they come through, it's, you know, Ulysses S. Grant, the great campaign and the, you know, cross from the west to, you know, to Atlanta, right? It's scorched earth, okay? That's what Babylon's doing in the world. Okay, uh, go on. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. Behind them, with a noise like that of wind, they leap over the mountaintops, mountaintops, like a crackling fire consuming bubbles, like a mighty army drawn from them. Okay, so, uh, 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 nothing's stopping them. Um, their chariots are leaping over the mountains. Okay, so not literally, they're not Peter Pan, uh, but but they're they're unstoppable, and, and you know, Garden of Eden before them, scorched earth behind them. Okay, and he's, he's comparing he's comparing them to locusts, which are like a mighty army that comes upon your crops. Right. Okay. Uh, Elijah. Yeah, you get this. It's like a tank just rolling over everything. Don't think you're going to be okay if this army comes against you. Okay, so what? where's Joel speaking? Where? Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. Does Jerusalem have walls? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you're hearing Joel, you're like, uh-oh. Yeah. Our, our apparently impenetrable city on a hill with a wall, it's not going to stand in front of these folks. I mean, just everything. They, they leap mountains with their chariots, so they can leap our walls for sure. They can climb over. Uh, and, and come in and enter into our windows. Yeah, okay, Bo. And let's go back to Lily. Okay, who's at the front of their army? The Lord. Um, and, and so here we go. The day of the Lord is the Lord coming against his enemies. And he's using, if you look at Isaiah or, or Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, you see that the Lord is using Babylon to execute the discipline of his own people. He, the Lord is leading them. In other words, you here in Jerusalem, don't think God's going to come and save you. God's leading the Babylon, Babylonian army against you. The day of the Lord is coming because you've forsaken me. Uh, as Jeremiah says, uh, Jeremiah 2, 17, you know, having not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way. And so now God, what Jeremiah is telling the people in Jerusalem is God is against you and he's bringing Babylon to execute his judgment against you. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and so um, now... Um, uh, so a uh, quick question on, on this. And so Blake, can you read that question, the, that bullet on the last bullet there? 
Yeah, so what's God announcing through Joel? Day of the Lord, destruction of Jerusalem. At the hands of whom? The Babylonians. The Babylonians. Is God going to defend them? No. Yeah. Now, what's the IHC here? Yeah, that's why Joel's talking. Here's what's going to happen if nothing changes. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so now let's look at 12 through 14. So Joel just declared this. Blow the trumpet. Let all who live in the land tremble. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. The day of the Lord. Nobody's stopping Babylon. The Lord is leading the Babylonian forces. They're going to climb over our walls and climb through our windows. They will destroy us. We will. Jerusalem would be scorched earth when they come. Um, and then 12 through 14. Uh, and so we're to uh, chase. Okay, so there we go. Um, who else said, see, see how Joel says, verse 14, what's the question there? Who knows? Who, knows? who else asked this question? The king of Nineveh. The king of Nineveh. Same, same two words. Okay, who knows? The Lord may relent. This is Jeremiah 18. Okay, um, this is how God operates. Why am I announcing to you that the day of the Lord is coming against you because it gives you opportunity to know so that you'll repent that you might be like the Ninevites and that God would relent. Uh, by the way, Jonah was written before Joel. Um, Jonah's out at like um, uh, 850-ish uh, B.C., Israel was still intact, right? Northern Israel? No, no. not not this, during, during Jonah's Jonah. time. Yeah, yeah, during Jonah's time. Um, and, and so they knew Jonah. And so they knew who knows he may relent. And so this is the message of Joel. Um, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but you can repent. And perhaps the Lord will relent just like he relented uh, with Nineveh. Okay? So that's, inter, you know, it's, historical or intervening historical contingencies. There's an intervention. There's a change in behavior of God's people uh, that can change what God has announced, keep what God has announced from happening if it was a bad announcement uh, there. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so uh, let's just read our question to finish off here. And so we are, Anna, can you read our question? What does Joel make clear Yeah, the thing he announced, all this destruction doesn't have to happen necessarily. Um, this is a, a, you know, we can assume from God that there are potential futures that he warns us of. And, and Joel has just warned them of this potential future. Okay, um, so we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you love us. And um, though... Um, uh, we all had a potential future of death and destruction. Um, you announced to us that and announced to us that you are good and gracious and compassionate and that you relent from bringing the destruction that you have declared. And, and so you brought us uh, life and faith and repentance so that that announcement upon our lives did not happen and will not happen. Uh, thank you for your compassion. Thank you for being uh, true to your covenant promises. And you have, with a covenant promise, uh, promised uh, that uh, your blood in the new covenant has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. So thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for that promise to us. 
Uh, we pray that you'd help us now to, to worship you for your goodness and graciousness to us, uh, sinful people, um, and that you delight uh, to show us uh, goodness and grace and mercy and to, you delight to bless us. Help us uh, welcome well those who are coming in these doors now, too, and, and help us to worship you well. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.